You can turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of James. We're back in James after a short break, beginning chapter 2. We'll be looking at James 2, verses 1 to 13. Uh, we spent uh, nine sermons about in chapter 1, and that's probably how much it'll take to do the rest of the book. James kind of has all these short headers in chapter 1 and then uh, longer sections throughout. So we're going to be doing 13 verses tonight from James chapter 2. And um, how about we stand as we read from God's holy word? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit murder, also said, or do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is relevant and it instructs us and it guides us in our lives. And so we ask for your spirit's help as we look to your word, that he would apply it to our hearts. Everything that you would have us believe and in the ways you would have us behave. Help us for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. In our text this evening, we're looking at, really, the sin of discrimination. This is the, um, the topic that the, really this passage is talking about. And when you look around us, um, is not our culture's favorite sin to talk about discrimination? Uh, there's many things our culture does that we consider sinful, and they don't turn an eye, but they love talking about the sin of discrimination, and so this is a highly relevant idea for us, and therefore it behooves us that we look to God's Word to find how God would instruct us as to this relevant and important topic. We want to have a biblical framework for how to think properly about issues of discrimination. Uh, this is something that people care a lot about. In a survey that was recently done for those in um, Generation Z, uh, this was of 13 to 25-year-olds, when they were asked, what's the biggest problem your generation faces, 
the number one response was discrimination. Interesting. And now, in many ways, the church has been maligned on this account, and there are many grave failures. And we're called to repent, but we're called to consider our ways, to consider God's word that we might align our conduct and behavior after the standard God has called us to. So with that in mind, we look to our text tonight. Now just a big picture of this passage before we look at the details. Uh, James, before he begins discussing the sin, he's come from chapter 1, and he's been talking about being doers of the word and not hearers only. And he talked about different ways that we practice the word, uh, particularly showing forth our faith and how we bridle our tongues and how we care for widows and orphans and in how we keep ourselves unstained from the world. He turns now to a particular stain of the world that had stained this church to which he's writing. The stain of discrimination or partiality in these words. And he brings up this topic and then gives an example of how it's actually going on in their midst. What might be happening? He then discusses the issues with that and then shows what a sin it is and that it's a sin that deserves God's judgment. But then he gives us the antidote, the way of escape, love for neighbor and knowing, fully knowing the mercy of God. This is a case study for us. It's a particular example that may apply in many different scenarios. And we're going to spend um, more time than usual in application tonight as we consider how the principles of our text apply in different situations. But I want us to understand some key concepts. You might see a, a long list in the bulletin, but as we walk through this text, I want us to notice some key concepts that will help us develop a biblical framework as we consider this topic. So let's dive in. Take a look with me at verse 1. James writes, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, show no partiality as you hold to this Christian faith. He's saying this partiality, it's out of step and incompatible with the faith you profess. Now, this word for partiality is really interesting. It's actually a word that many consider New Testament writers to have made up. That is, there was a problem in their churches they wanted to address, and there wasn't a term for it, so they made up this term in Greek that really, um, the literal rendering would be receiving the face. This is the issue, receiving the face. That is, receiving only someone's outward appearance, what is immediately visible when you look at them. Uh, we might call that judging a book by its cover. And this is sometimes translated as partiality or favoritism or discrimination which is probably the term most familiar to us. And um, better than favoritism, we see that this is two-sided. It's not just showing favoritism to some, but it's also showing a, a disregard for others. Two sides of the same coin. And this, these judgments we make, this receiving the face, uh, this is something we do all the time, and we are terribly misguided with our first impressions. Uh, there's been studies done of job interviews and how candidates in job interviews perform. And these studies conclude, much to, to, to my shock, that job interviews have almost zero correlation with work performance. We think we can judge someone from this short time with them so well, but usually we're entirely wrong. There's almost zero correlation. But we make such strong, quick judgments. 
James says this is incompatible with Christianity. And this was the case in James' day. Discrimination came to his church, and sadly, it often comes to many of ours as well. And James now is going to move from bringing up this topic of partiality, discrimination, receiving the faith, face, he's going to give us an example now of exactly one way that this was going on in the church. Look with me at verse 2. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. The context here is probably a church meeting, much like ours. And you can imagine this scenario. There's an usher trying to seat people, and someone who's well-dressed comes in, and someone poorly dressed, and immediately the well-dressed person comes in, his face lights up, and he ushers him into a good seat. There's not really a good seat left for the poor person. Of course, you know, this is in a day where there's not many chairs in abundance, and so he puts him right at the feet, sitting at the ground of this rich person. And the issue James brings up, what's going on here, is he uses the language, he says, you pay attention to the one showing fine clothing. This is an important concept of where our attention is placed. And why is our attention, where our attention goes so important? Because attention communicates value. We attend to the things that we value. Attention really is at the heart of worship. When we give our attention to God, that is showing He is valuable. He is worthy. Our attention shows where our value lies. Um, if a wife is speaking to her husband, but his attention is more on the sports game, that's showing his value at that time is more for what's going on there than the communications from his wife. Our attention shows what we're valuing. The people we pay most attention to often communicates the people we value the most. And although this isn't the whole of discrimination, it's a helpful indicator to us, a, a helpful gauge to just, um, a diagnostic to think, where does my attention go? On whom does my attention lie? And to whom does my attention pass by? And this is important because attention, it confers dignity, worth, and honor on people. And although we can, there's still many terrible examples of evil being done to people, um, discrimination in our churches isn't most often uh, explicit and intentional harm being done. Harsh words, disparaging remarks. Most often, it's this form of inattention. And sometimes it's being simply ignored that hurts most, where you're not considered worth the effort of even being acknowledged. And, you know, we might think, well, you know, I've never said or done anything mean to anyone, but our lack of attention speaks for itself. And that's why James says in verse 6, you have dishonored the poor man. By showing attention to the one and not to the other, they have dishonored this poor man. Dishonored this one who bears God's image equally with the rich. They are alike image bearers of God with equal dignity, equal worth, equal value. 
And so to confer special treatment on one image bearer over another is dishonoring the God who's given it to both. And so James concludes, look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This paying attention to the rich and not paying attention to the poor, it, it reflects a dividing of the church into different groups. Instead of reflecting a unified body that represents Christ's indiscriminate redemption that he's bestowed equally on us all. Instead of that, this church is reflecting a worldly value system that gives special honors to the rich and disregards the poor. And it's a betrayal of gospel unity. Think of Galatians 3.26, where we're told that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The church was meant to be this breaking down of these segmented barriers that were so common in that Roman society. And the way we treat one another ought to reflect the reality that we are truly members of one another in Christ, equal partakers of the grace of God. And so when one discriminates and shows disregard to some based on these mere outward distinctions, what's really happening is that this person is sitting in judgment over the other, rendering a verdict of their worth. He talks about them becoming judges with evil thoughts. And what is a judge with evil thoughts? But it's a judge that's corrupt, a judge that's not rendering just judgments, a judge that is partial, receiving only the face. Uh, imagine a real judge like this who rendered his verdicts on prejudgments and on outward appearances. Uh, one who thinks himself, meh, he, he looks guilty, that's a guilty face, 10 years. We would think that's terribly unjust because we know that we ought not judge by external appearances alone. And so we might think of this concept as pre-judging, and it's really at the root of discrimination, making decisions ahead of time, pre-judging people based on what we first see. And here's the problem with that, is that it treats people like objects instead of humans. Now what pre-judgments do is they take group dynamics, generalizations that may or may not be true about whole groups of people, and applies all those generalities to specific people. And so what that does is it degrades an individual person into a mushed-up non-person, a mere group member. And it dehumanizes someone to judge them purely based on group affiliations. Now, yes, it's true that when you think of a grand scale, perhaps a political scale, uh, there's ways that we are forced to make statistical judgments. But we're talking about here the church. And to treat people as mere group members and not individual humans with their own stories, their own hearts, minds, and intellects, is to degrade their humanity and devalue the image of God in them. I, I was thinking, just by way of illustration, how in the summers, my family, we would be at my grandparents and sometimes have friends over, and we would always dig up grandma's garden fresh beets because these were unlike beets that you've ever had. They were so tasty. And people would always come and say, oh no, I don't like beets. Um, I know beets, beets are no good. And we would then you know, say, you've got to try these beets. And they would try them and, be, and say, these are amazing. I've never had beets like this. 
And in the same way, when we make prejudgments based on one experience or some group dynamic, we lose the opportunity to experience the beauty and richness of individuals and what they have to offer us. And this is extra problematic because our brains love easy categorizations that give us simple heuristics of how uh, to live, whom to avoid and not, simple ways to make judgments. And so we jump to quick things. Um, oh, you're part of that denomination? Okay, well, I, I know what type of person you are. Or, oh, you support that political position? Okay, I know you're one of those. Or, oh, you're part of that age group? I, I know what kind of worker you're going to be. We do this all the time, and it's a shortcut that bypasses the need for investigative wisdom. It bypasses the need to form relationships and actually know people. And prejudgments like this are fundamentally unloving because they don't follow the injunction of 1 Corinthians 13, where we're called and told that love believes all things and hopes all things. We prejudge and bypass love. We get this wrong all the time. And James even points out for this congregation that they don't even understand the nature of the dynamics between rich and poor that they're prejudging. Look at verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is saying, you're getting this all wrong. You're dishonoring the poor. God loves the poor. His heart is for the poor again and again in scripture. Um, what does Mary sing when she's praising God for Christ? That he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he's sent away empty. Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And why are the poor blessed? Because most often they are poor in spirit, those who know their need for God. While Jesus conversely says that it's harder for a rich person to enter heaven than it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Why? because the rich person often trusts in his riches. But he goes on to say that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation is not too far from any. But James is saying, you're not evaluating people by God's standards, but by worldly judgments. And furthermore, he points out the irony that these people they are honoring are actually the ones who are oppressing them. They are the rich landowners and merchants that are actually oppressing the people in the church, the immigrants who fleed, fled persecution in Jerusalem to live in this new area. He says, you're honoring these ones and fawning up to them when they're oppressing you and dragging you into court, exploiting and extorting you. Why are you fawning over them? This is the issue that's going on to which James is writing. And as we see this description and case study James gives us, these two concepts, I do think, jump to the fore. Those of prejudgment and disregard. And I think that's really a helpful rubric as we think through discrimination. That discrimination is prejudgments about people that lead us to disregard them. We assume they're like this, and therefore, we feel justified in showing them disregard. We'll wait further on application, but it's worth keeping these questions in mind. Uh, what prejudgments do I make about people? Uh, what people do I show disregard for? And discrimination here, it's a serious sin with serious consequences. Take a look at verse 8. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James tells us here that discrimination is sinful because it violates the law of neighbor love. Discrimination loves some neighbors and not others. It's being unjustly choosy with your love, unjustly picky in whom you love, stingy in bestowing our love. That is, I'll, I'll, I'll bestow love on you, but not you. I was reminded of an example of, um, I saw this video years ago, but um, an egregious example, there was this famous singer, and he had the, this party bus he was going to go take and party, and um, these three friends, um, these girls were wanting to get on the bus, and he just came out and said, you know, you come on, you come on, and then said to the third one, mm, you aren't good looking enough, so you're going to have to stay behind, and brought the two other friends. Just blatantly saying, I want you for your external appearances and not you. And we think that's so horrible. How could you judge people in that way? But do we not in some ways do the same thing? I, I like having these sorts of people over to my home. I, I, I'd like to welcome that person and that person into my life, into my home, but maybe not those people. We just don't have anything in common. They don't really connect with me. We're often choosy in whom we bestow our love upon. And this violates God's law of neighbor love. And James says this is law-breaking. Look at verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Now just a, a quick note on this text. Uh, this verse is often used uh, by people who would say that all sins are equal. There's no difference between them. And so, you know, don't judge my greater sins because you're a sinner too. And that's not quite right. There are different heinouses of sins. There are different things that aggravate sins and make them deeper and more transgressive of love. What this text is saying that all sins are sin. Whether a bowl has just a, um, just a chip in it or a crack in it, the, the bowl is compromised either way. So whether you think you've committed a big sin or a small sin, you're a lawbreaker and have violated God's law, which is his will. God's laws ought not be thought of really as just random disparate commands, but truly a unified whole that reflects the will of God. And so God's will is violated no matter which of his commands we break. Discrimination is against God's will, and so a violation of God's law. And so the injunction James gives in verse 12 is so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says this is a law of freedom. God's law and will, it always produces what is good. Indiscriminate, free love leads us to lives of vibrancy and joy. And discrimination hurts others, but it also hurts ourselves. And it cuts us off from the richness and beauty of the people God has created in his image. And therefore, it is this freeing law that our actions will be judged by. And if this all this law-breaking, this God's will-violating sin, if we'll be judged for it, ought we not take our discriminations very seriously? 
In seriousness, James says that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. This is the reverse of Matthew 7, 7, where Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And James is saying that the discriminators who are not loving and showing mercy towards their neighbors, these merciless people prove by their conduct that they've never known God's mercy towards them. And just as Jesus said that if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. He says here, in no, um, with, without equivocation, that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And so what's the way out of this predicament? James simply says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And we can fill in those gaps because we know that for the repentant sinner that holds faith in Christ, God's mercy wins out over the judgment that is due to the sinner for his sin. God's mercy triumphs over that judgment in Jesus Christ. And that triumphant mercy transforms people to become merciful like their Father in heaven. That they would follow that command to be merciful as their Father in heaven is merciful. And this is a journey that as we receive God's mercy every day, we're transformed to be like him in showing mercy to ourselves so that we can prove this same point. That in our lives, the mercy we show others is by far a more triumphant way to live than just judging. Having prejudgments that result in disregard and choosy love. So is the summary of our text. And we need to examine ourselves by this standard. Whether this sort of partiality, of which we have one example in our text, is true of us. The heading is that you cannot hold the faith of the Lord Jesus with this partial discriminating attitude. The example he gave was rich and poor. But this could apply to many different forms of discrimination. So I want us to look at ways we can apply these truths and apply them in our churches in particular. That's what James is talking about, discrimination at church. Uh, my, my original title I was going to give this message was when discrimination comes to church. And although there, there might be lots of things we want to say uh, politically or socially or in our workplaces, uh, let's consider our own house and how we can clean our own house first. And as we apply, um, I'm not necessarily saying all these things are true of us here at Grace Fellowship, but we're connected to a greater body of Christ. And we need to be aware, we need to have our eyes open and our hearts open, that we're just ready to deal with this when it comes, and ready to do what we can to be those who show mercy and indiscriminate love. I want us to consider together whether in our heart or actions, whether individually or institutionally, uh, we sinfully discriminate in the following categories. Based on wealth, based on marital status, based on gender, ability, or skin color. And I want us to use those categories of prejudgment and disregard that we've been looking at as we do that. And not that I want to make accusations against any one of us, but I want us to ask ourselves some hard questions. Not just to assume we're in the clear, but to really search our own hearts and ask that God would search us and lead us in the way everlasting. So first, let's consider wealth. Uh, this is the case that's in our text. And I want us to ask us questions like, do we prejudge those who are in 
the middle class or professional class as being godlier, wiser, or having better character than those in the working class? Do we prejudge those in the working class as being unwise or lazy or ungodly at prejudging them with these sins without truly knowing them and their circumstances? These are sinful judgments. Now, individually, it may be true of any one person. A wealthy person may be godly and wise, but it may not be true of the person in front of you. Are we partial to the middle class and therefore disregard those in the working class? One example of where you might have seen this um, is that it seems to me that it's most often those in professional classes that are disproportionately recommended for eldership and for church leadership. Uh, This is a pattern that takes place in many churches. And though they may be wise and godly men, I think it often betrays worldly prejudgments and that we evaluate people based on outward characteristics instead of the qualities Scripture tells us to look at. Would it not be so among us? Secondly, marital status. Do we prejudge those who are unmarried as having, or do we prejudge those who are married as having a superior character and godliness and worth to those who are unmarried, whether they're young or old? Do we perhaps have a bias that makes us partial to families over singles? And sometimes our biases in this way are betrayed in the ways we talk about singleness and the way we try to explain it. Uh, Paige Benton at Reformed University Fellowship writes about the warped theology that that is reflected in the ways we often try to encourage singles. Listen to some of these things that people might say that reflect this. As, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. Or when they say, you're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters with which to work. Or, well, as a single person, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. As though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must be no part. Or lastly, well, before you can marry someone wonderful, you need to become someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. We don't want it to be that we would ever treat singleness like a disease that needs to be cured or avoided, or the single like lepers unfit to to be part of our couple's fellowships, to be a part of our families. Because was not our most perfect savior himself unmarried? We're not 11 of the 12 apostles, Peter excluded, single and called by God to amazing and incredible service for his namesake. And so would our relationships not show a bifurcation and whether we show love to couples or singles? And it's not that there can never be homogenous groups where um, people in a similar stage of life spend time together, but the issue is whether we are showing disregard for a whole segment in the church. Do we ignore and not pay attention to these in our midst? Would it not be so among us? Third, let's consider gender and ask ourselves whether our actions and attitudes ever betray a partiality towards men over women. Men, do you show disregard for women by not seeking their input, 
not conversing with them, or not even looking them in the eye. Our prejudgments were reflected in disparaging remarks made about women, whether it's calling them too emotional or too difficult, or whatever the case may be. I mean, you actually wouldn't believe how often when, um, when, when I go and preach at other places and Julie's there with me and we're standing together after the service, um, perhaps arm in arm or hand in hand, when, when people come and talk to me that they don't even look at my wife. Um, their eyes stay fixed on mine and they say hi and leave without even acknowledging her existence. Um, and I understand that you know, people want to talk to the person who is preaching, but uh, there's a disturbing pattern uh, where people sometimes struggle to even look women in the eye. And it's distasteful. And would it not be so among us? Uh, we think about this individually, but let's also think about the church. And we're in an especially difficult spot here because we do affirm what we believe to be the biblical restriction on women's ministry that uh, only men ought to be uh, elders and deacons. And so because that's the case, we're in a sense swimming upstream with the cultural climate. And ought we not then be that much more intentional in encouraging and affirming where women can minister in our midst, to use their gifts? And so we can ask ourselves, um, are women given important and diverse roles to fill? Um, I'll never forget a friend of my mom's uh, just saying, I, I have no time for a church that thinks the only role I can fill, the only service I can render is making food. And not that making food is a small thing. It's wonderful to serve that way. But if that's the only role, what are we saying about these people God has gifted and gifted to us in our body? And too often, instead of there being just one place where women are not able to minister, there's sometimes no place for women to minister. Interestingly, um, a couple of decades ago, our own OPC denomination they put together a study committee to look at issues of women in leadership in the church. Uh, there was a lot of controversies going on this in the time, and they studied hard and worked through the scriptures, and they came to the historic position that uh, the offices, as we have, were restricted to men. But here's what our OPC study committee said, and I want us to take these words to heart. They said, Many of our churches are woefully impoverished for our failure to capture the biblical richness and diversity of women's ministry. Our neglectfulness of the ministries and gifts of women have lost to our church the breadth and depth, color and warmth of the New Testament pattern of Christian experience and church life. Men also need to repent where necessary of a failure to encourage women in the use of their gifts and of making their womanhood more of a yoke than a privilege. Would we never make womanhood to be a yoke and a burden instead of the privileged gift that it is by God? And would God forgive us where we have prejudged the composure, the strength, the wisdom or intellect of women such that we've disregarded their gifts and what they can be to the church? They are God's gift to us and we ought to cherish them as such. Fourthly, I want us to consider ability do we show a partiality for the abled over the disabled? Do we avoid connecting and conversing with others because we fear it might be an awkward conversation? We might not quite know what to say or wonder how to connect. And we need to overcome such excuses. 
Uh, do we disregard people because we prejudge the value of their social interactions to us? Um, it's a different but related example. I remember when I was trying to just reflect on my own life in seminary uh, a couple years ago and reflecting on the people I had become friends with, I realized that I had showed um, an almost complete disregard for people in my school who, who didn't speak English as a first language. And in this sense, um, the lack of English ability was like a disability, in a sense. And I realized that I was so selfish in my interactions that I wanted to have a conversation that would be stimulating to me, where I could run at the highest level, that I had actually fully discriminated against this whole student population, not considering that their interactions, that they wouldn't be any benefit to me. And I had to repent before the Lord about this and realize that I was missing out on the value of these students that God had gifted to me and the gift that I perhaps could have been to them. How could I have avoided this selfishly thinking, I just want the best conversation partners? And in similar ways, do we act in a sense selfishly with our conversations and relationships? Do we show disregard in not caring about issues of accessibility? Um, just to brag on my former church in Vancouver, uh, it was a really old building that was not wheelchair accessible. And they had brainstormed all these ways they could retrofit the building and just nothing would work, either illegally or with the constraints of the building. But they worked and worked and worked and eventually at great cost and with a great amount of effort, they were able to fully change the front of the building to make it accessible because they cared that their church be a welcoming place for people with disabilities. And then again, I'm not necessarily in any of these accusing us of anything in particular. I'm glad we have that, the hearing loop here in the sanctuary. But again, let's keep our eyes open and let's examine ourselves whether these seeds of things come into our hearts. And lastly, skin color. Are we partial to people whose inherited culture and skin color matches our own? Again, not that we... Uh, are making mean or spiteful comments to people, but do we generally ignore or avoid those that are unlike us? Do we show disregard because of prejudgments like, well, I don't know if any, we just have anything in common? Or uh, do we cordon people off with one another and say, well, you guys be friends? Do we avoid taking the time to work through any possible language barriers or accents? Can we be patient? We need to develop a compassionate understanding of what it's like to be outside the majority culture. Um, I, a few examples came to my mind. One of my friends in seminary was just telling me about his experience at, at a reformed church in Grand Rapids. Um, a pastor who was here from Africa, and when someone found out his wife was pregnant, they started talking to him all about the evils of abortion and why they should avoid that. And he was just saying to me, I'm a pastor here from Africa, and he's Judge me that these are the things I'm going to be doing and tempted to. And another example, where he was just saying people were starting to spread ideas, well, you know, watch out for this guy. He'll probably come asking for money sometime soon. Just, and he was so hurt at how the church had prejudged him. When he's a godly minister of the Lord, here training, in, um, training at, at the seminary, a specific situation, but also a general one. Um, one of my friends in Arizona, I remember asking him one time, um, I asked him, I said, how often are you aware of your blackness? And he said, every day. He said, I'm constantly aware. And I was just then thinking in comparison to myself, how often I'm actually cognizant of my whiteness. 
and it's almost never. And for him, going to a mostly white Reformed church, just this idea that there's a constant awareness of your differentness, constantly aware that you don't quite look like everyone else, and just seeking to be people that understand what it's like to walk in those sorts of shoes, to try to have understanding for the experience of people that have diverse experiences from ourselves so that we can be compassionate, so that we can learn to not make ignorant and unhelpful comments. Because really, God's church is a diverse collection of people from all tribes and tongues. As Mike read from Revelation 7 this morning, we're all worshiping at the throne of grace. And diverse worship, it reflects the worship of heaven. It reflects the beautiful diversity of Christ himself. For every person reflects Christ uniquely. And our churches ought not reflect the segmentation of society, but the unity of heaven. And the truth is, we're all guilty of practicing the sin of discrimination. And we all stand before the law accused as transgressors. And so the call is to, re- re- to repentance, to turning away from our sin and putting our trust in Christ. Because you know what? We can't atone for our guilt by just being better, by becoming anti-discriminationists or whatever the case may be. We can't atone for our discrimination no matter how much we advocate for equality. Our sin can only be covered on the cross of Christ. On the cross of Christ, Jesus himself was discriminated against. His hometown, the place he was from, was laughed off by people. They, they, they said no good can come from Nazareth where Jesus was. The Romans that tried the case almost didn't consider this Jewish case worth acknowledging. The people chose a criminal Barabbas over Jesus' own life, showing him utter disregard. Though he had healed many, they cast him out, even to the point of death. Jesus can identify with us in our, marginali- in our marginalizations, in the ways we're ignored or avoided. But Jesus, in his work on the cross, he was vindicated by God the Father, proving the worth of his sacrifice. And Jesus rose, bringing forgiveness of sins to stingy lovers like you and me, to selfish discriminators like you and me. He grants the forgiveness of all our sins, welcoming us into the very family of God, though we couldn't be more different from God. We couldn't be more unlike, and yet he welcomes us to the very closest place shows us incredible love and mercy. And in Christ, God's mercy triumphs over the judgment we deserve. But Christ's love and mercy, it transforms us to be people who reflect that mercy and grace and love to our neighbors. And so it's our heart and desire that by the Spirit, we would more and more learn to truly, indiscriminately love all God has put in our path, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We need to frequently call on the Holy Spirit to stir up true compassion and love for the diverse people around us. We need to examine our hearts as to whether there are any neighbors in our lives we are ignoring or disregarding. And we do this together as a body. I can't reach out to everyone. You can't reach out to everyone. But my challenge would be for you is to take some time and think, whether there's perhaps one relationship you could invest in, one person very unlike you, you could seek to reach out to, where the natural unlikenesses between the two of you are bridged by those common bonds of gospel grace. 
We each have different passions in our hearts, different people that we want to reach out to. And so this is something we can practice as a church together as we all seek to do our part in loving and welcoming our neighbors as God has loved and welcomed us. So let's be a church that loves all, that prejudges and disregards none, and that displays the glories of heaven in our diverse loving relationships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have graced us with incredible welcome and love. Though we are sinful and defiled of ourselves, you've granted us forgiveness and brought us to the throne of grace. Lord, we pray for forgiveness for the ways we have ignored, bypassed, and disregarded others. We ask forgiveness for the ways we have prejudged others based on worldly judgments. And we ask for help to have the eyes of heaven, to have your vision and attitude towards people, that we would learn to love our neighbors as ourselves, to not be choosy in our love, but to be generous in our love, as you have so generously loved us. Lord, help us to examine our own hearts to see if there is any way where we might be out of step with your heart. And would you draw us to repentance, but even more strengthen us to be a loving, one-anothering community of faith that worships the Lord who has bought us and worships him together, side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. And would you do this to the glory of Jesus' name as we ask it for his sake. Amen.